0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben-Shushan from Congregation Magin Abraham, here with you live on j Radio at times that we could all u- use words of chizuk. I'd like to just start with a beracha baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, shehakol nehiya bilvaro. Little by little, the news of Eretz Yisrael begins to trickle back to America. And we start listening and we start hearing the cries of our brothers of Klali Yisrael. I am Bore Olam, should protect Klal Yisrael, and each and every one of us. Achenu kobe Israel no matter where they are. And so many people have been asking, and I've been listening all day, Rabbi, what is it that we can do? We feel it. We know that Klali Israel in these times of Tzara, they were brought to us in order for us to react. And react we will, but give us guidance. How are we to react? What does Borei Olam want from us now? We just came out from the Hagim. We just came out from a Rosh Hashanah, a Yom Kippur, that Mamash Klali Israel rose with such growth and we were we came to a sukkot and in the sukkot we felt the hug and the warmth of bore Olam as the sukkah literally wrapped itself around each and every one of us of Klal Yisrael Zman Hateno. and then we made those days through until the great Hoshana Rabbah, and it was at that moment of the Hatima de Hatima as we stood up all night and we said the tikkun and we learned the Torah and we went up Mamash ma'alot gvohot, until finally the moment of Yichud between Borei Olam and Klali israel, such a closeness such a feeling and then finally the great wedding and the dance Simchat Torah and we danced and those who They felt the ma'alot of how we connected with the Torah. And then suddenly, coming out of such high and lofty days, we hear the news that's coming from Eretz Yisrael and how Achenu B'nai Yisrael are suffering. Rabbotai, what do we do now? In this week's parasha, in Parasha Bereshit, is something phenomenal to look into. Boreholam, he turns to each and every one of the creations of the world and gives a tzivui, a dibor. And al yedid dibor, he continues to create for six days. When it comes to the creation of the trees, take a good look in Pasuk. The Torah says that when Hashem was mitzaveh the trees to grow, the Pasuk says, It's piri, O piri. The commandment was that the trees and the fruit will both taste the same. The trees will be edible, it's piri. The it's will be a piri, a fruit edible. O piri. And as well it will make fruits. But if you take a good look in Rashi in this week's Parasha, Rashi tells us, yes, that was the tzivuy, but nonetheless, the trees did not listen. And like the pasuk later on tells us, deshe. What does the pasuk describe when it comes to the trees coming out of the ground? It says the Torah, ose piri. The trees, well, they weren't a pity, they weren't edible, but they did make fruit. So therefore, the fruit they made, but they themselves to taste like their fruit, that they did not listen to the tzivoy of Hashem. It's incredible. How is it that the trees did not go with the actual tzivoy of what Hashem said? Hashem said trees and fruit, both should taste the same. But yet, when it came down to real time, the trees only produce fruit, but did not taste like its fruit. Answers the chizkuni something incredible. Do you know what the trees were thinking? Do you know what was the hejbon, what the trees actually came up with? The trees believed that what they were doing was in the best interest of the tzivui of Hashem. The trees said, why does Hashem want trees to give fruit? So that there'll be food for mankind. So that the human race will be able to survive and the world will be able to continue says the trees, if we listen to the tzivui of Hashem, literally, and the trees and the fruit will both taste the same, then man will come along and not just eat the fruit, they'll eat the trees as well. And when they start eating out the trees, there's not going to be any trees left. And if there's no longer any trees in the world, where's man going to get fruit from? Where's he going to get the food? So when to assure what we think Hashem really wanted... We're going to go and we're going to do the tzivoi with the Heshbon. That we're going to do it the best way, knowing what we think Hashem really wants. What was the downfall of the trees? Says the Heshbon, they made their own hejbonot. They made their own calculations. Hashem told them, just follow me, take my words. And simply do what I tell you to do. But the trees felt that they were, in a certain way, doing better than what was told to them. The true kavanah they thought they reached, and in essence, instead of helping, like so many times when people make their own personal calculations, when all Borelam asked for was just, just listen and follow the Torah. Don't make cheshbonot. Don't come up with your own calculations. Nonetheless, the trees did. And sure enough, they came out with what was not asked from them. Do you know that later on, as Rashi points out, when Adam HaRishon actually fell into the sin and the chet of the etz hadaat, Rashi describes on the pasuk of etz peri or peri, that not only the trees didn't listen to Hashem, but later on when Adam does the avera, Later on, when Adam does the chet, Hashem is going to punish not just Adam, but later on, he punishes the trees as well. Arur adama And all of the Mepharshim want to know, Hare, if the trees did something wrong, that which they didn't listen to Hashem was a few days prior. Why did Hashem wait to go and punish the trees only later on when Adam sinned? And from here we see something incredible. The trees started something that later on was going to be the society that's going to bring to Adam's failure as well. The trees made calculations. When Hashem said to the trees, just follow my words, follow my commandments. I simply told you that the tree and the fruit should taste the same. But yet, the trees made their calculations and came out with something different. Because the trees started this concept of making calculations on the word of Hashem, coming up with what you think is better or more suitable to bring out the tzivui Hashem instead of settling on going with the straight-up na'ase v'nishma. Because of that, later on, Adam fell to the same exact mistake. Borei told Adam Arishon, Anything you want, you can have. Just one thing I'm asking you for. Don't touch nor eat from the Etzahad. One simple thing. I'm asking you for a Naaseh V'Nishma on one tree. But yet, Adam also made that same mistake of his own society. He made the mistake of the heshbonot. He didn't follow the straight Naasev and ishmar, the tzivuy of Hashem. And we are still paying for the heshbonot of man, Adayomaz. This is a tremendous concept. The concept is a simple emuna and Bitachon in the words of Boreolam. What Boreolam tells us, we follow. When Boreolam tells us to keep Shabbat, we keep Shabbat. We don't stop making cheshbonot. Well, I can open my store, al yedeh Agoy on Shabbat and make a contract in six days it's me. And one day it's... Keep the cheshbonot. Go with me tamim. Tamim tiem Hashem elokecha. Be simple with Hashem. A simple emunah. A simple faith. That was the signature of the Jew of yesteryear. That, that is a great milestone for an American Jew today. me Do you know that they say over on one of the great kings of Klal Yisrael? Chizkiyahu Hanavi. Excuse me, ha melech They say over that the king at that time, he was visited at that time by the Navi. And the Navi said to him, you're a great king. At that time, Cloud had more Torah than they ever had before. However, the Navi said to his king, Hare, you never got married. And because of that, you should go and get your Tachrichim, because in another few days, the Gezerab Mitah is upon you and you're going to die. The king said, But Navi, I don't understand. There's more Torah today in my generation than ever. It says that in his generation, even the young children knew the Tuma and the laws of Tahara literally by heart. He turned to the Navi and he said, how could this be? The Navi said, because you did not listen to Dvar Hashem. Hashem wanted you to get married and you never married. The king says, but you don't understand. Hare, there's a good reason why I didn't get married. My great grandson Menashe, he's going to be a terrible rasha. I could see al hakodesh that there's going to be a terrible rasha that's going to come out of me. And because of that, I have a good reason. Says the Navi, that's the point. Hare, you're making the cheshbonot of Hashem. Don't make Hashem's calculations. Hashem knows exactly how to work everything out. But what he told you to do, you do. And because he told you to marry and you didn't marry, you're going to lose the melucha. And you're going to pass in another few days. It was at that point that the king, he turns to the Navi and he says, Oi, I made a mistake, so I'll marry now. He turns and he asks the Navi, give me your daughter. The Navi says, I'm sorry, it's too late. Bik ziran shamayim Mita is upon you. The king says, oh, it's too late? There's no such thing. Haray kibalti mi avi aba. I have a tradition from my father's house. That a philoxerf khada munahat al savarot al adam altit ya'ish min harachamim. Even if a great sword is on the neck of a person where things look bleak and it looks like it's over, never give up hope. I'll teach I can still pray. I can still Davin. I can still turn over the Gezerot. I'm not making Cheshbonot anymore. I'm going with Borei Olam. If this is what Borei Olam wants from me, then that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to Davin and I'm going to pray that the Gezerot are mitbatle. And that's exactly what the Melech did. He literally threw out the Navi. He turned to the wall, says the on Mberachot, and he began to pray. And at the end of his Tifilot, sure enough, the Gemara tells us that he was Zoché to another some 15 years of life. Why? Because, no matter what's going on in Klal Yisrael, no matter how difficult situations look, This is not a time for Heshbonot. This is not a time to start making calculations. This is a time for pure emunah and bitachon B'Hashem. We sit down and we begin to pray and we dive into Bore Olam, to please save us and help us. I know I mentioned maybe a few weeks back or maybe it was a different class, but the great Belzarebi, Rebbe Aaron Rokeach, Mibels, there was a time where he was getting medical treatment in Germany. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but at the end of the medical treatment, he went out to a resort in Bad Hamburg. And it was over there that he specifically wanted a certain room across the street from a Highline hotel. They thought that he was there just a vacation, to relax. There was no vacationing, there was no relaxing for the great Belzarebi Rebbe, Roke Rokei At that time, he sat and spent in tefillah and ta'aniyot, literally day after day after day. It was only years later, as we once said over the story, that they found out what he really was up to. Because at the end of that stay, as he was leaving, he turned to Shamosh. And he said, ah, I tried. I might have pushed him off. I might have held him off, but I couldn't knock him out completely. Years later, they looked back and they found out that who was there across the street from the great Belzer Rebbe in the Highline Hotel of German dignitaries. Hitler, Yemach Shemov, was there. And the Rebbe was davening day and night to stop the impending and oncoming tsara. Chlali Israel has to wake up now. This is a time to be proactive. These things don't happen by chance. There's a message on every ounce of news that's coming back to the United States of America. There's a cry out. This is what's going on. What are you going to do about it? What are we doing about it? Just to tisk and task and say, Oi! Oh, vei! What, what a what a terrible thing, Hazit! This is terrible, but that's that's not enough. Now's the time for tefillah. Now's the time for extra limud Torah. We need the Haganah of Klal Yisrael, the Torah hagdosha because the Torah Magne O Matzle. We need the tefillot of Shamaim now. We need Bore Olam to come and be marchem on Klal Yisrael. You speaking? to people in Eretz Israel, the last few days. And they literally tell you in the streets of Yerushalayim, they were nervous to let their kids out to go into the streets. We heard that recently, the great Reb Chaim Kanievsky, Shalita, Tenlo, v'shanim. Yearly, he would come out right after the Chagim to go visit the Kotel, to go to the Makom HaMikdash, to Harabait, And this year he decided not to go because of the sakana. Could you imagine? People over there are literally feeling the fear of a sakana. This isn't something we sit back and let go. I'd like to tell you, years ago, when I was learning as a Bahur in Yeshivat Itri in Talpioti Yushalaim, I just want to mention it is extremely hard for me to speak. I just came out of some or Hoshanarabah. My voice is shot. I have literally nothing left but I just didn't feel right to sit while this was going on but Adar to be mechazek each other let me share with you this years ago when I was in Yeshivat 3 in Yerushalayim so one Sukkot my brother and my sister decided that they were going to come to Eretz Israel to spend their Sukkot in the Eretz HaKadoshah it turns out that they came a few days before the Yom Tov. Actually, they were already there from the time of Kippur. Now, what I'm about to tell you now is exactly the way we lived through it, exactly the way the newspapers in Israel, they ended up calling this later on, the Ness of Hanukkah. But this did not happen in the time of Hanukkah. This happened actually at this time. The time of the Khagim in Eretz Israel. Later on, we found out the story. Later on, we found out that there was a group of terrorists that were coming from Bethlehem, which was right next to the area of Talpioti in Rushalayim. There was a group, about eight of them, a few cars. And the plan was that they were going to come down the hill driving straight into the yeshiva campus. And on the campus, there was not just the yeshiva of Itri, the Bet Midrash, the kolel, the dormitory buildings, but there was also a young elementary school that moved there only recently, some time before. But this was a very large elementary school. They worked out of these, what they call in Israel, the karavanim, these little bungalows-like these little makeshift type of trailers. How many kids was in this elementary school, you think? Between the boys on one side of the Itri campus and the girls on the other side, there was close to 1,500 children. And the way it happened was that every day, these boys and girls of this elementary school of modern, what you would call children, Came out both at the same time. So at 3 o'clock every day, it was impossible to go outside to the yeshiva parking lot. The parking lot was a swarm of over 1,500 children all coming out at once. And of course, the buses came down at the same time. And you have kids running in every direction. The teachers sometimes looked dismal. They looked like they didn't know what was coming off. Such a large crowd of children. The plan that these terrorists had, as they staked out the property for some time, that they were going to drive down exactly at three o'clock, the moment that the bells go off, the moment that the bell rings for school to be out, and all the kids, the moment that they come out in pandemonium, these thousand five hundred kids with their teachers and with their rebbe's, the boys, the girls from different sides of the campus, as the school buses come down, they were going to drive right down, swoop, drive into the campus, jump out of their cars with machine guns, and they were going to open fire on the crowd. That was the plan. And they worked on this plan for months. And finally, the day came. Here was the day. And sure enough, they all drove down there to Hebron. They were all driving cars with Israeli license plates. Like this, they weren't stopped by the, any of the pit stops. And then as they met together on top of the hill, at two minutes to three o'clock, they were perfectly in sync on time. They were about to come down to do the disastrous tragedy that they were about to do. And they drove down the hill together. And they drive right into the yeshiva parking lot. And it's still quiet. It's a minute to three. The bell didn't go off yet. And suddenly three o'clock strikes and the bell goes off. And these men jump out of their cars, these terrorists, holding machine guns. And it's quiet. And there are no kids. And they're looking around. And they're looking at each other. And the yeshiva campus looked like a ghost town. And they looked at each other, what could have gone wrong? Where's the swarm of 1,500 kids? Quickly, not to be nabbed jumped back into their cars and they drove off not understanding what took place. Later on they found out that that day happened to have been Erev, Rosh Hashanah, when the kids had no school on that day. But they weren't done. They said this time they're going to be smarter. So this time they actually called up the schools in advance. And on one day in Aseret Yimei right before Kippur. They rescheduled, and this time, they weren't going to have the mess-up that they came to last time. This time, they had it all planned out. They knew for sure the school had school that day. They knew exactly how many kids, what side they came from. They watched it time and time again. They even had video of it. And now, again, they came back to do what they tried to do the first time. The cars came from different sides of Jerusalem. One car, as we mentioned, came from the side of Bethlehem And as the car was coming through, although all the cars the terrorists were driving were Israeli cars with Israeli yellow license plates, something caught the eye of this Israeli soldier at the stop coming through Bethlehem into Jerusalem where they had that checkpoint, something went off in the eye or the mind of this Israeli soldier. Bore Olam's Rahmanut, we all understand. Where for some reason, why he picked out this Israeli car over the hundreds that were coming through, he jumped in front of the car. He waved his arms. He asked the driver not just to stop, But till today, nobody understands what possessed this Israeli soldier to ask the driver and everybody on the inside to get out of the car. And they all got out of the car. The soldier saw that the driver began to sweat. He saw that the passengers began to sweat. Quickly, the soldier, he raised his rifle. He clocked his rifle and he pointed it at them and said, open up the trunk. They didn't want to open the trunk. He says again, open the trunk. They didn't want to open the trunk. He raises his voice, open the trunk now. Right when they saw they weren't getting away with this, they all ran in different directions. The soldier ran after two guys. Other soldiers ran after the other guys. Finally grabbed them, brought them back to the car and got them to open the trunk. Grab The way the Israeli newspapers reported, there was enough C4 and dynamite there was enough automatic weapons there. Has v'shalom. Shalom. Shalom Neda. We should never know. We should never know. And they were caught. And once they were caught, they interrogated them. And they got out of them exactly what time and where the rendezvous point of the other three cars were supposed to meet on the top of the hill of Der Chevron in Talpiot. And sure enough, after they got out the information, The Israeli police, the military sent a few unmarked cars, parked themselves right at the top of the hill, and at five minutes to three, they sat and they watched as the other three cars, on time, pulled all together. They waited for the fourth car. They waited till a minute to three, seeing that the fourth car wasn't coming. They decided to do the mission on their own. They started to drive down the hill, but at that moment already, the Israeli police, the military surrounded them arrested them, and found in the other three cars enough ammunition, oi! And in the background, as they were arresting these terrorists, at the bottom of that hill, you were able to hear the bells of this elementary school going off. You were able to hear the yelling and the screaming of 1,500 kids running out all together. You were able to actually see the school buses going down, and they didn't even have a clue what was about to come upon them. I was on the Itri campus on that day in Bet Midrash. My brother was already by me staying for the Chagim, as mentioned earlier. None of us had a clue that we were even in danger, let alone that Borei Olam was there to save us. It was only months later that the Israeli newspapers got wind of this story from the intelligence they called it Nes Hanukkah because it hit the public on Hanukkah time. But it took place right now. We have to realize that as long as Klali Israel is able to get the message, this is a wake-up call where again we call out to Ahainu Bet Israel. The tefilot are vital. The Torah is vital. We can't sit back and say... Oy, it's a sh** it's going on in Israel. What's going on in Israel is what's going on here. We're all in this together. This is not a time of Not. This is a time for Klal Yisrael to act. And we need to get the message. Like this, if we get the message now, we won't chas have any issues later on. I'd like to repeat over an incredible story that I heard. Recently, I'm not sure if this is something you heard yet or not. I don't know exactly which classes they play, but in Short Hills, New Jersey, there was a Lubavitcher Hasid who was very instrumental in making a Russian young man and a Russian young lady become religious Baale Teshuvah. He worked with them for many years. And now, not only were they Baletishuva, Teshuvah, but actually they were at the moment that the two, the young Russian man and lady, they were about to get married. And they were so happy. And this Lubavitcher Hasid, he said to himself, you know, when you have a hand in helping someone become baal Teshuvah, you become so connected to those people like family. And the truth is, once they leave the circles that they grew up in and come to the Baletishuva Teshuvah world they actually could use the warmth of anyone because suddenly they find themselves a little bit alone. This, this, this Lubavitcher Hasid decided he's going to befriend them. He's going to be their family. He helped them make the arrangements for the wedding. He helped with everything he could. And then the great day of the wedding came. And this Lubavitcher Hasid, he decided, he said to himself, that although there might not be many guests, but he's going to make sure that this is going to be the most lebedical wedding that anyone has ever attended. He really felt close to them. So sure enough, good to his word, that night, after the Chatan and Kala came out of the chupa, he was getting everybody into it and dancing. After that, obviously you could imagine what a moment the simcha for this couple. They came out into the wedding hall, and as they danced in, and they announced their coming for the very first time. This L'Bav Chachavit Hasid jumped to his feet and he started to dance. And he started running around to all the people in the audience and getting everybody up on their feet, let's go, everybody, let's dance with them. And he literally went to get every person in that hall to dance. Like this it would be such an unbelievable Lebedica wedding. And he succeeded. He got everybody in the hall to dance. Except for one old man. This old man was sitting. And he was clapping. And he was smiling. But no matter what, he was not getting up to dance. So finally, Lubavitch Hasid runs up to this old man and he says, Listen, come. Everybody's dancing with the Chatanikala. They're They need our chizuk. They need our support. Come, let's dance with them. The old man says, I'd love to dance. I I just can't. So he says, what do you mean you can't? He says, well, I'll tell you the truth. I'm the Zayda. I'm the grandfather, the Chatan. The Hasid said, what? You're the Zayda, the Chatan? You definitely have to come and dance. Come on. He starts pulling him and schlepping him out of the chair. And the old man's screaming, no, 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 no. He says, what's the matter? Why aren't you getting up to dance? The old man looks at the Hasid from his chair and he says, um, I know you're not going to believe this. I'm 87 years old. And I just got my Brit Milah this morning. The Hasid said, excuse me? What did you say? He says, I, I just got my Brit Milah today. I'm in such pain. I can't dance. Hasid said, are you joking? Are you serious? He says, yes, I'm very serious. He said, but I don't understand. 87 years old, today you got your Brit Milah, what's going on? The old man looks up at the Hasid and he says, I'll tell you. He says, in truth, you know, that boy out there, that Chatan is my grandson. And I love him. I love him more than anything in the world. I would do anything for him. And you know, just recently, he became Baal Teshuvah. And thanks to you, Rabbi, and to many of the community here, he became very religious and very inspired. And just recently, only a week before the wedding, my favorite and beloved grandson, he comes and he tells me, Grandpa, you know I love you. I would do anything for you. But Grandpa, please, I hope you're not going to be hurt what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to go to the biggest and greatest wedding, the biggest night of my life. And I'm going to go under the chuppah, and I just learned what the chuppah is all about. I just learned, I just heard that the chuppah is literally the presence of the shechina. It's the holiest place. And therefore, Grandpa, please don't be upset. But to stand under the chuppah, I only would like those who have a brit milah and who's circumcised to stand with me under the chuppah together. Please don't be upset. Please understand where I'm coming from. And he says, when I heard that from my grandson, I I didn't know what to say. I mean, I'm not going to miss standing under the chuppah. So I turned to my grandson and I said to him, for you, I'm going to do it. The day of your wedding is going to be the day that I get a Brit Milah. No matter how old I am, I'm going to do it for you. And sure enough, this morning, the day of the wedding, I had my Brit Milah with the Mohel and the Sandak. And yes, I was the oldest baby in history. But I got it done because I'm going to stand under the chuppah with my grandson. And he says, as you saw, tonight they wheeled me in with a chair, and they literally carried me up under the chuppah. And with great pain, but with great love, I stood under the chuppah with my grandson, circumcised with a brit milah, under the shechinah of Hashem, under the canopy, under the chuppah, under God's hug. But because of that, I can't dance. I'm in such pain. When the babush hasid heard this, he couldn't believe his ears. He turned to the old man, he says, you're for real. I can't believe what you're telling me. I'm totally and absolutely inspired. You actually did that for your grandson? I'm just blown away. I'm moved to tears. Listen to me. Levav Hasid reaches into the inside pocket of his jacket and he pulls out an envelope. And on the envelope, there's a date, and it says, the Rebbe. He rips open the envelope and he pulls out a dollar bill. And he leans over and he hands the dollar bill to the old man and he says to him, listen, this dollar bill I got from the Lubavitcher Rebbe over 25 years ago, maybe 30. I'm giving you this dollar bill. You know that when he used to give his farbringans, the Rebbe, the Hasidim afterwards would go around in a circle and each person would go up in front of the Rebbe and the Rebbe would hand them another dollar bill. He says, I was there. And I'll never forget the Rebbe handed me a dollar bill and he told me it should be for health, for success. But now you're the one that needs the health. So I'm giving you the dollar bill that I got from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I'm giving it to you now. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to recover. The old man, he looks up, he takes the dollar bill, he looks down at the bill. And he begins to cry and he starts to shake his head back and forth. And he just mumbles under his breath again and again, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. The Hasid returns to him and says, what's the matter? I mean, you look like, uh, is everything okay? The old man says, no, you don't understand. You don't get it. 54 years ago, when I first came to the United States from Russia, when I came here to America, I knew nothing about religion. I bumped into an old friend from Russia. And here in New York, he told me, you have to see a great rabbi. And he drove me down to Eastern Parkway. He took me to 770 there and he brought me in. And there I looked at this Rebbe and I looked at the Hasidim and they were dancing and they were singing, they were clapping. And he says, when the whole thing was done, everybody got on a line, just like you said. And they went one by one in front of the Rebbe and the Rebbe handed each person a dollar bill. He says, when it came my turn, I was kind of nervous. I never stood in front of a Rebbe before, let alone a holy tzaddik. He says, when it came my turn, I didn't know what to do. I walked in front of the Rebbe, and the Rebbe, he looks up and he's about to hand me the dollar bill. And then he pulls his hand back and he doesn't give me the bill. He looks up at me and he says to me, tell me, do you have a Brit Mila? I said, Rebbe, I just came from Russia. I turned white in the face. I was so embarrassed. I said, no, I don't. He said, the Rebbe gave me a smile. He took my hand and he started to rub my hand. And then he put the dollar bill inside my hand. And then he told me with very warm words, he said to me, here, take this dollar bill. And the day you get a Brit Mila, I'm going to give you another dollar bill. Ah, you don't understand. Sometimes we get the message right away. And sometimes it takes years until finally people get the messages that Borelam sent us. But not to think for one minute that each and every happening in our life is a tremendous wake-up call. It's literally crying out, stop, look up, and remember, Abba, what am I doing with my life? What am I living for? Do I have fulfillment in my life? Am I close to bore Olam? Am I doing what I was put here in this world to do? It comes to a point where after waking up at six in the morning and then running out, getting on the train, going to the city, working like a dog all day, coming back at night, 11 o'clock, literally we don't see our wives anymore. We don't see our kids anymore. On weekends, we're too tired to even sit by the Shabbat table. Right after the hamotzi and the soup, our heads are already down. We're running to sleep. Where is the life? Where is the dream? The American dream. What happened to us? What happened to Klal Israel? Abba's crying. He's sending us wake-up calls. Wake up. Take a look at what's going on. The world is upside down. Klal Yisrael is in Tzara. We can't just go on status quo. We can't just go on with another day. Borei Ulam is crying out, let's do it now. Al titya'esh min Arahamim. It doesn't matter what we've done, where we're coming from, what our last name is, what our passport is. What matters is, right now, are we getting the message? Israel right now needs tefillot. We don't know what 5776 is going to bring. We don't know what's going to happen this year. But on the onset of the get-go of the first few days of the year, already we see, this isn't a year that we could sit back. Now is the time for Kelal to be Mahazik. What are we taking upon ourselves? A better Shabbat. Maybe a al Talashon. Maybe a little bit more sensitive with the feelings of people. These things in Shemaim are tremendous Grenades. That when we take it upon ourselves, we create explosions in heaven that could turn around everything and anything. Letovat klal But we got to do something. Ask yourself, what are you doing? What are we walking into tomorrow's news with our hand today? I'd like to share with you, a little over a year ago. Everybody remembers what was going on in Eretz Israel a year ago. Everyone remembers how it started with the kidnapping of those three boys, three korbanot in Klali Israel, and how those three boys, literally, ay, the korbanot that they were, and how through that whole terrible saga, but we found out what behind the scenes the terrorists were up to. We remember the tunnels that they were digging for years under the ground of Eretz Yisrael, literally right into our neighborhoods. And we also remember the Rachmanut that Kelali Yisrael was able to draw from Shamayim because of the Ahdut that we had. Everybody and anybody will tell you, whether you in Eretz Yisrael, America, France or Australia makes no difference the achdut at that time of Kalal Yisrael was literally ke'ish echad ubelevechad where the Israeli news was reporting that even some of the leftists of the Israelis that were never religious were found quietly behind closed doors looking at books of Tehillim praying for the first time for those boys for Klal Yisrael, for the war of Gaza. And look how we came out with shining colors. Look at the unbelievable dome of protection that Klal Yisrael got from Shamaim, not the Iron Dome. The dome of Borei Olam, the protection that Borei Olam and the miracles of thousands, three, four thousands missiles come raining down on Eretz Yisrael And each one had a different story of why in miraculous measures, no harm, no danger, no damage came about. It was only a year ago. Let's not forget how we were able to pull together. Let's not forget how we were able to literally stand side by side like Klal Yisrael and the tefilot and the heartfelt learning and Torah that was going on at that time. We made a difference and we knew it. Why should we wait shalom until other things happen? Let's right now be mahazek each other. I want to end off and just tell you an unbelievable concept that took place at that time in the war of Gaza. And I heard this. I heard this from my brother who runs a Yeshiva in Israel called Yesod, nicknamed Last Stop. Who had actually one of the guys in his yeshiva, who was one of the commanders of a very elite group. And this group was sent into Gaza. And this was a point where Gaza already was cleared out. And the only people remained behind were only the worst and the most dangerous of terrorists. And they were sitting and waiting to continue fighting the war against Israel. And listen to what this commander says this commander says that he was given the orders to enter a certain block in Gaza now at that time you have to understand ladies and gentlemen listen to me when a city goes dark and it becomes like a ghost town and it literally became the battlefield itself you have to appreciate the fact that there's nothing around not even the animals you know, the animals have a sixth sense, and this is studies show this many times, that on the impending danger, they already know that they're running off and they're nowhere to be found. They've seen this by volcanoes. They've seen this by hurricanes, where from the animals and their reaction, they have a sense for danger, impending danger, as even way before it takes place. There was nothing moving in Gaza. No humans, no animals, nothing. Nothing. And here was this platoon of Israeli soldiers with this commando, the head commander standing in front of the group, entering this empty block, as Israeli intelligence were told that on this block in one of the basements was one of the largest stashes of explosives and C4 that was being used against Israel, and their mission was that they were going to somehow or other infiltrate the block, find out which building, which house, which basement the goods were being stashed and to be able to take out the terrorists and to be able to detonate and to disarm them from all these explosives. You can imagine what type of mission this was. This was literally a life and death mission. And the commander says over that he hasn't slept in close to 36 hours. And it was hard for him to even see a few feet in front of him. He was constantly blinking, making sure that he had proper vision. And there they entered this empty block. In the front, there was a commander holstering his life. Right behind him, there was the man behind him with his hand on his shoulder. Behind him was another man with his hand on his shoulder. Behind him was another guy with his hand on his shoulder. And this is the way they went down the block, arm in arm, one at a time, literally as one unit, as a chain, all linked together, trying to come up with any direction that they may jump out on them. And they walked very quietly down this block. As they started coming down this empty street, the commander suddenly saw something incredible. This white dove comes flying off of the roof of one of the buildings on a city that the animals have been long gone. This white dove flies right down the middle of the street as if it's coming in front of the commander and his platoon of Israeli soldiers. And then to make matters even more crazy, this white dove lands in midair right in front of the commander's face. And it flaps its wings and hovers right in the air. And the commander's looking at this bird. And he's blinking as if to try to make sure he's not hallucinating. And he knows he hasn't slept in 36 hours. But this doesn't seem right. And the bird literally looks like it's floating in middle of midair. And he, he just can't make out what's going on. So with the with the tip of his rifle, he starts leaning forward to nudge the bird with his rifle. And just when he was about to touch the bird, the guy behind him with his hand on his shoulder pulls him back. And that was a sign not to take another step. The commander didn't move, he froze. And then when he took a second look, he saw exactly why. As his eyes refocused, he saw that this white dove wasn't hovering and floating in midair, but rather it landed on a very thin trip wire going right across the entire street. If he would have taken one more step, he would have tripped that wire later to find out that that wire was connected to enough C4 and explosives to blow the entire block with all the Israeli soldiers. He looked back at that dove, as literally, the bird looked back at him. The bird flew off, and the entire platoon was saved. We don't know the trip wires that are coming at us this year, but we do know that every time Bore Olam sends us a little white dove that lands on those little dangerous places and screams to us, "Open your eyes." look what's happening look what's coming at us this is not a time to be status quo we need to react we need to get the wake-up call and the message clallis Israel. this is a time for tefillah this is a time that tomorrow morning starting tonight we pray with Minyanim. we don't miss a Minyan. this is a time that our Shemitah shabbat gets better this is a time where we learn an extra few minutes of torah on our study and if we haven't been learning Torah, now is the time to find a shul, a daf shiur, something that will enable Klali Israel and the Haganah, which is our Torah, that's magne umatzle, to continue to protect us so that finally will be zoche, that no matter what's coming at us the coming year, bore Olam will finally shine on us. The Finally it will come the moment we'll see and we'll be able to say, let Sarotenu die. Thank you for listening. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Magen Avraham, wishing Chlali Yisrael, Siyatidhishmayah, and Shmira, and Hatzlacha, and Shana Tova Umborechet.